0: If you would, please turn to Romans, Romans chapter one. We'll be reading verses 16 and 17. So Romans 1, chapter, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we are here this morning because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, you have powerfully saved us from our sins and transferred us into the kingdom of your Son. And Lord, we remain dependent on that power even this very day. Lord, I remain dependent upon that power as I preach your word. Lord, and we pray for that power to take effect in our lives so that we may receive your word. And we pray for the power that comes from the gospel that leads to a transformation and an application that comes through your divinely inspired words. We pray for that power this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, in a faculty devotional at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, one professor proposed this line of thinking What is the most important book in the universe? The Bible. Which book within the Bible is the most important? The book of Romans. No argument there. Which chapter in, the, in Romans is the most important? Chapter 3. Which paragraph in Romans 3 is the most important? Verses 21 through 26. Which word in verse 25? Or sorry, which verse in, parag- in that paragraph is most important? Verse 25. And which word in verse 25 is the most important word? And that word is propitiation. Where it says in verse 25, whom God, that is Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So therefore, according to this line of thinking, the most important word and the most important verse and the most important paragraph and the most important book and the most important book in the entire universe is this word propitiation. To many of you, this is probably an unfamiliar word. To many of us, not all of us, all of us, it's not a word that we typically use in our normal vocabulary. And even in the Bible. It's a word that is used less than a handful of times, but it is a very important word at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it has everything to do with righteousness. So while last week we looked at the gospel of John and what John teaches us about faith, namely that the object of our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ, and it also teaches us about the nature of faith, we turned then our attention to the book of Romans, and see how the book of Romans speaks to the topic of faith. And at the heart of this particular topic is the word propitiation, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But what we learn from the book of Romans is that righteousness is impossible apart from faith. Many scholars agree that Romans 116 is a great theme of the book of Romans in combination with Romans 1.17, that the righteous shall live by faith. So what I take in for this particular sermon is sort of taking that statement, the righteous shall live by faith, and broken it up to three different points, each statement or each part of that statement making a point in this sermon. So we'll begin with the first part of that statement, which is the righteous. When we look to Romans chapter 1.16, and following, we see this dual revelation of God. We see the revelation of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about later. But if we read further on, specifically in Romans 1.18, we see this second revelation of God. Romans 1.18, by the way, word of, just to prepare you, we're going to start out pretty heavy this morning. But if you hang with me, it'll get better, I promise you. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what we see about the second revelation of God is that human sin is what reveals the judgment and the wrath of God. Because without sin, there is no judgment and there is no wrath of God. What this passage teaches us is that God is not indifferent towards sin. God is not careless about sin. God just simply doesn't turn his face away from sin. But what, what, what Romans 1 18 and following teaches us is that God actually takes sin very personally, that God has a hatred towards sin, that God is opposed to sin, that God sees sin as an enemy. The wrath and judgment of God is a response of a holy God who is righteous. And God is always against sin. If you continue to read the rest of Romans chapter 1, it tells us that part of this present day revelation of the wrath of God is God handing man over to the sin that he embraces. To greater and greater and greater sin. We see that the problem is that man suppresses the truth about God that, God, that man naturally knows about God, knows about the reality of God, that God exists, that God is the creator of the world, but man suppresses that reality, that truth in his unrighteousness. Puritan pastor Matthew Henry says, An unrighteous, wicked heart is the dungeon in which many a good truth is detained and buried. Further, it tells us in Romans that man exchanges the glory of God for images, speaking to idolatry, that man worships everything else but God. Man will worship status, power, money, sex, security, people, entertainment, sports, whatever it is, people worship all of these other things but will not give worship to God. Exclusively to God. And that man exchanges the truth about God for lies. Man would rather have lies than have the truth. So the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of man because man does not give honor to God nor give thanks to him. Because they worship other things and exchange the truth. So if Romans 1.17 tells us that the righteous shall live by faith, then the opposite of that would be that the unrighteous shall die in sin. If verse 17 tells us that it is the righteous that shall live, then it tells us also that there's a need for righteousness because if we continue to read Romans 1.18 and following, even all the way down to the middle of chapter 3, what we come to understand is that there's this need for righteousness. And then when we look to Romans 1, 16 and 17, what we, want to, what we should want to know is, okay, if the righteous is the one who shall be saved or who shall live, then I want to know what it is to be righteous. How do I become righteous? What do I need to do in order to have this righteousness? However, the problem It's not only that no person is righteous, but also that no person could ever be righteous on their own. And the reason for that is because of sin. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Christian author John Maxwell has told a story before about a grandfather who goes to spend time with his grandkids. In the afternoon, he decides to take a nap, and during that nap, his grandkids decide to play a trick on him. They take this uh, what's called, I don't know if you've ever smelled it or have heard of it before, but lamburger cheese, that has this interesting odor to it, but they take a piece of cheese, they put it right under his nostrils as he's sleeping, so when he wakes up, he says, something stinks. Then he goes into the kitchen. Wow, the stink is in here as well. And then finally he decides to go outside for some fresh air. After a few moments, he's like, Wow, the whole world stinks. Romans 3, 10 to 18 tells us that nobody is righteous. Not even one. That is, everyone without exception. That no matter where you go, even the most desolate place the stink of sin is always there because you and I wear the stink of sin. Romans 3:10 to 18 speaks to the actions and the words of the unrighteous, but is also saying something about the heart, which Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. All of our unrighteous actions stem from an unrighteous and sinful heart. And the crux of the matter is that there is no fear of God in the eyes of man. When I was talking about the fear of God. It's not talking about this terrorizing or paralyzing fear, right? When God says that He command, when God commands us to fear Him, He's not talking about that kind of fear, but He's talking about a reverence. God is also the one who commands His people to love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So He commands us to love Him and He commands us to fear Him. And what this getting at, what the Bible is commanding us to do, what God is commanding us to do, is to have a fidelity to God that is born out of love. Romans 3.22 says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a failure, according to Romans three twenty-two and twenty-three. Fin is a failure to hit the target. What this passage seems to be saying or teaching us is that this target is objective, right? That morality and righteousness is objective, not subjective, not subjective to you or this person or that person, not subjective to me, but morality and righteousness. Has an objective nature. There is a target that we are all called to hit, and the problem is that nobody hits that target. More than that, Romans teaches us, and the Gospel of John, I think, also teaches us the problem is not that we cannot hit the target, the problem is that we don't even try. In essence, Sin is the absence of righteousness. But let's suppose, let's suppose that you can do everything right. Let's suppose that you can be completely righteous the day you were born, which is impossible. I mean, the scriptures teach us that everyone is born in sin, that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. But let's suppose that you have never done anything bad or evil or any kind of wickedness or any kind of sin. According to the Scriptures, according to the book of Romans, your sinless perfection would still be considered a sinful perfection. Why is that? Because it would still be apart from Christ. As long as there is a lack of reverence, as long as there is a lack of honoring God and giving thanks to God, as long as there is a lack of fidelity of God born out of a genuine love for God, personal perfection doesn't matter because it is apart from Jesus Christ. So in the devastating dilemma of Romans 1.17 where it tells us that the righteous shall live by faith, is that that passage applies to nobody, and that it is unachievable. If sin is the failure to hit the target, the problem is that we fail to hit the target, that no matter how strong we are, that no matter how far back we pull that arrow without breaking the bow, even if we have a perfect aim, even if we should desire to hit the target, and we let that arrow fly the arrow will always stop short of hitting the target but god in his word specifically we see in the book of romans he gives us the solution right if the problem is that we are not righteous because of our sins we see now that there is an answer to this problem god has an answer of giving us that righteousness so that we then can say with full confidence that the righteous shall live by faith, that I can live by faith. So then we turn to the second part of that statement. So the righteous then shall live. Romans 3.21 says, But now, So then we come to the word propitiate. Propitiate simply means to appease wrath or to satisfy wrath. Typically it's with regards to a deity. That's why we have the sacrifices in the Old Testament where the Israelites continue to bring sacrifices before the Lord. Lambs, goats, rams, bulls, all these different sacrifices in large part in order to appease the wrath of God towards human sin. The problem is not a fickle God who is quick to get angry. The problem is human sin. The problem is that we always sin. And so there's always a need for a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. But Jesus is the propitiation that comes from heaven, given by God. And he, as according to the book of Hebrews, is the perfect Lamb of God. So that there's no more need for sacrifices because Jesus perfectly satisfies the wrath of God towards human sins so that there is no more need for sacrifices. So that every single one of our sins, past, present, future, have been all paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ through our faith in Him. And the word propitiate in the Bible has a judicial and a relational component. So with regards to the relational component, think about it like this in any relationship, in any good relationship, there has to be forgiveness. Right? Because we offend one another at times, and so we have to be able to forgive one another to maintain a good and healthy relationship. Now, when I, if I offend you and I ask for your forgiveness, my right, forgiveness is supposed to be without cost. In other words, I'm not trying to earn it, I shouldn't have to earn it. Forgiveness is about earning something or paying for it or trying to do something in order to acquire it. Right? Forgiveness that is earned isn't forgiveness. That's recompense. That's restitution. That's reparation. That's not forgiveness. And the thing about forgiveness is that for the one who has been offended, for the one who does forgiving, there's something to absorb. And what that means is that right, when you extend the hand of forgiveness towards me, right, you're choosing not to retaliate. You're choosing not to pay it back. And that's what forgiveness is. It's absorbing the cost. Even though at times, depending on the nature of the offense, we might want to retaliate, feeling like that that would make us feel better. But forgiveness is not taking matters into your own hands. It's also not holding the offense against the person. So while it is free in the sense that it's not earned, it does cost something on the part of the person who does the forgiving. But when we look to the scriptures and it tells us that God is a merciful God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, one question we might ask, well, why doesn't God just simply forgive? If He is a merciful God, if He is a gracious God, why can't He just simply forgive me for my sins without any need of propitiation, without any need of sending Jesus Christ as a Savior? And the reason is because forgiveness is not always without consequence. So, For example, if, I, if my daughter decides to take the car on a night out, Like 13 years from now, she's three right now, and let her borrow my car. But supposing she was 16, 17, I lent her my car, and I told her to be back by dinner time, 5:30. she comes at 10, she could apologize to me 100 times, and I might forgive her 100 times. In that sense, the forgiveness didn't cost anything. I'm going to freely forgive you, but it isn't without consequence, and the consequence might be, you're not driving my car for the next month. Forgiveness is offered freely and given freely, but sometimes it isn't without consequence. And forgiveness isn't always without justice. So speaking to the judicial component of this word propitiation, if someone commits a murder, right, he's caught, brought to trial, the judge charges the individual with a crime, pronounces a judgment fitting of the crime, the grieving party, let's say, decides that they want to forgive the person. Let's suppose that they forgive the individual for the murder, for the heinous crime that they had committed, for the sin, the egregious sin that they've committed. He's forgiven, but it does not meet the demand for justice. Justice must still be paid, and justice demands that a punishment fits the crime. And when it comes to sin, sin also is judicial and it is also personal. It is judicial because we are are guilty of treason because we have been created by God and we have turned our backs to God, to a righteous and infinite and holy God. And that our lives are filled with unrighteousness but God instead created us for himself to, be, to display works of righteousness. There's high treason against God, and we are deserving of a punishment that fits the crime, and that is a, a, a judgment of infinite proportions. And it is also personal because all sin is personal to God, to the God who created us in his image, to the God who has, uh, who has given us, The freedom to enjoy His creation, who has created us for relationship, not only relationship horizontally with one another, but also who has created us for a vertical relationship, foundationally and primarily. Sin does not give glory to God. Sin does not reflect the character of God. But sin seeks self-glory. Sin is never indifferent towards God, but sin is always a personal rejection of God. Then our problem is that we are unrighteous and we are unrighteous because we are sinners, but propitiation, this wonderful word, answers the problem of forgiveness because it satisfies both the relational component and the judicial component of our sins. So God has given to us Jesus Christ, the one who takes away our sins. He makes a way for forgiveness while absorbing the consequences of our sins. You see, yes, the gospel removes the punishment of our sins, namely the punishment doesn't come to us anymore. But it also redirects it. Jesus redirects the consequences of our sins to himself, to the only one who can take it, and endure it, and come out alive. Jesus takes the punishments that we deserved. Again, last week we looked at Jesus as the object of our faith. And today we're focusing more specifically on what Christ did and what he accomplishes on our behalf. Scottish theologian John Murray once wrote, The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. It was Christ so to deal with the wrath that the loved would no longer be the objects of wrath, and love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. Praise the Lord. So we get to the heart of what Romans teaches us about faith. At the heart of faith is this word propitiation where Jesus satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf. This word encompassed in the person of Jesus Christ, answers the great problem of the Scriptures, and that is, how can God be right with man? How can God forgive sinful man while also maintaining his own righteousness? And that answers in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation, who satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf so that he can freely give us his grace and mercy and forgiveness. Because of our faith in Jesus. Propitiation bridges the gap between God's righteousness and your faith. In Romans three twenty six, it tells us that it was God, or it was to show God's righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Righteousness can mean different things in different contexts, but here in this context, it is talking about God's righteousness in justifying the sinner. Because like we saw, we were each in desperate need of this righteousness. But the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, namely His righteousness towards Sinners. That in the gospel, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we see the righteous demand of God met in the person of Jesus Christ. But we also see the righteousness of God in justifying the sinner and declaring him innocent and making him righteous. In a courtroom, a judge can acquit a person unknowingly that the person might actually be guilty. Right, he would, might not ever know. But in the divine courtroom of God, we don't have this problem of omniscience because God is omniscient. He knows every heart. He knows the thoughts of man. He knows everyone's actions. He knows everything about you and me. And so in God's divine courtroom, nobody ever gets away with anything. The one who is guilty is actually guilty. The one who is declared innocent is actually innocent. But the great thing also about this divine courtroom is that those who entrust in the gospel of Jesus Christ are given the righteousness of the judge. God himself gives you his own righteousness. John Calvin says, If we seek salvation, that is, life with God, righteousness must first be sought. In order to be loved by God, we must first become righteous. We cannot obtain salvation otherwise than from the gospel, since nowhere else does God reveal to us his righteousness. And if I might add, nowhere nowhere else other than the gospel of Jesus Christ does God give us his righteousness. Faith in Christ. It's what activates the gospel in our lives, and it is faith that imputes to us or credits to our account the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his unrighteousness is counted, or his faith is counted as righteousness. Further on in verse 20 of, of the same chapter, and raised for our justification. So what do we learn from this set of passages? What we learn is that works, no matter the quality of the works, and no matter the quantity of the works, does not save anybody. And why not? Why aren't we saved by good works? Why aren't we saved by the quality of our good works? Why aren't we saved by the quantity of our good works? Because sin is pride-filled, individuality-driven, and sin is idolatrous. Essentially, sin is a faithlessness towards God. But the reason why faith is the primary and the only means of our salvation because it is faith that gets us to once again trust in the person of God and in the person of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Because faith is about trusting, trusting in Jesus, trusting in the promises of God. And I would add, I don't have time to get into this, but faith is also the primary and only means of our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ because faith is what gives God the most glory. Right? it's the difference between the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee who was praying to God with eyes lifted up to heaven, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a liar. I'm not like this tax collector. But I tithe every week. I go to church. I do this and that. That person isn't justified in the eyes of God. The tax collector, on the other hand, has his eyes not towards heaven but down to the earth. And he's beating his breast. and He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Faith is the primary means of our salvation and not good works because faith shows that, one, that a sinner is casting himself only in the God who can save him. He's casting himself upon the Lord. God, I am a sinner. God, I need salvation. God, I need your mercy. God, I need your forgiveness. God, I need your mercy. Be merciful unto me, a sinner. And that shows the great value and worth and the preciousness of the person of Jesus Christ. So Now that we understand our need for righteousness, and how we receive that righteousness, not by our works, not riding on the faith of another person, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. We can then finish this statement in one seventeen of the book of Romans. The righteous shall live lastly by faith. Again, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Sin reveals the judgment of God, while the gospel, on the other hand, reveals the righteousness of God, not only in judging the sins of man, but the gospel also reveals his saving the sinner and justifying the sinner and making righteous the sinner. From faith for faith, from the beginning of faith, from the moment that we place our faith upon Jesus Christ to the end of our faith, that is ultimately our salvation. The day when we will be united with Christ. From faith for faith. All because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which the power of God is revealed. The power of God in regenerating the sinner and making him or her an adopted son or daughter of God. The power of God in justifying the sinner. The power of God in reconciling the sinner to God. The power of God in making the sinner righteous. That statement in Romans one seventeen is actually a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet is commanded to give or pronounce a judgment upon God's wayward, idolatrous, sin-filled people. And the prophet has a problem with God's means of justice or judgment because he's using other human agents to bring judgment upon his own people. But the instrument of his judgment, which were the Chaldeans, were also wicked sinners. But God assures Habakkuk that they too will one day be judged. But in its context, the book of Habakkuk teaches that the one who is righteous is the one who believes in God as supreme over all other beings, above all other gods, and continues to live his life by faith and that it is his faith that will ultimately carry him through this judgment that comes from God. So it is the righteous that shall live by faith. That faith isn't something that we do just once, but faith is something that we do every single day of our lives. That faith, faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith in the person of Jesus Christ is what saved us, is continuing to save us, and will one day ultimately save us. So we must continue to live by faith because faith in the gospel is ultimately what's keeping us in the hands of Christ. It is the righteous that shall live and ultimately live by faith. So then to conclude, a couple of different thoughts. One is, I think it's helpful for us to understand the depths of our sin, to understand that sin is personal. Sin is always personal to God. That sin is a hatred towards God. That sin is animosity, is hostile to God. That sin is a faithlessness toward God. That sin is always driven by selfish motives. And that sin is ultimately what reveals the judgment of God. And that sin is what drives us then to the propitiation that we receive in the gospel of Jesus Christ when we understand the magnitude of our sins, we can then also understand the magnitude of the sheer grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think what enhances our view of the gospel of Jesus Christ if we enhance our view of the depravity of our sins. Because if you have a low view of sin, if you don't understand the magnitude of sin, then you really don't understand the magnitude of the grace of God that you received in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never ever forget the depths of your sin. Not so that you can wallow in your sin and be filled with shame for your sin, but so that you can understand just the joy and the brilliance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation of sinners. And lastly, Because we have been saved through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, through which we are declared righteous and made righteous, we can then walk by the Spirit. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with Christ through faith, united with him in a death like like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and desires of the Spirit are against the flesh so that these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Galatians continues shortly after and talks about bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And if you you desire, if you aim to walk by the Spirit, the manner in doing so is making sure that you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, walking in gentleness, walking in patience, walking in self-control. This is what it means, in part, to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans tells us in in, in chapter 8 that although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So if you are a sinner saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith in the person of Jesus Christ, you're no longer enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to righteousness. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the Spirit is life and grounded in that life. is this righteousness that you have through Jesus Christ. So then we are called to walk by the Spirit. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we still do sin. But if you are Struggling with a particular sin. If you experience this tension that, is, that Galatians five sixteen and 17 talks about, if you experience that in your mind and your heart, be encouraged. Because if you were not saved, if you were still enslaved to sin, there would be no tension. But the person who does walk by the Spirit, the one who has the righteousness of Christ, there's still a struggle. And that struggle, in a way, is an affirmation of the righteousness that you wear through faith in Jesus Christ. So continue to press on. Walk by the Spirit each and every day. Live by faith. The Book of Romans teaches us that we are in desperate need of righteousness. And righteousness comes to us only by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, who not only absorbed the penalty for our sins upon himself, but he also reconciled us to God by his propitiation. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you haven't placed your faith upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're still in need of that righteousness, desperately so. But that righteousness can be yours today by placing your faith upon Jesus, calling to Him, confessing your sins, confessing that you are a sinner in need, in desperate need of His grace and mercy, committing your life to Him. And He will give you the righteousness of God. And He will reconcile to God. And He will make it so that you are adopted as a son or daughter of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel that has saved us, that continues to save us, and that ultimately will save us. God, we pray for that power to be on display in each of our lives every single day. We need that transformative power so that we may continue to live by faith, so that this righteousness can continue to change us and transform us day by day. So we pray, God, that the work that you have begun, that you may continue, and that you will bring it to completion one day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.